Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program. We all know her from Three's Company and many other things. Suzanne Summers, author of Two's Company, a 50-year romance with lessons learned in love, life, and business. Suzanne, thanks for calling. How are you? I'm great, Neil. Happy to be talking with you. Absolutely. This is my yeah. 26th book. Wow. It's the first um, non-health book I've written in a long time. And I wrote it because a couple of weeks ago we celebrated our 50th year together, and I thought with all the bad news that comes out of Hollywood and all the marriages that are breaking up and falling apart, um, here's one that works, and it works in such an interesting way in that people are always saying, how do you two do it? Because we spend 24-7 together. We haven't spent a night apart in 37 years, and we're business partners, and um, it's kind of a figure eight, you know? Business, love, family, sex, business, love, family, sex. It's kind of great. And then, see, that's very interesting when you talk about that, that you didn't spend a day apart. It's a partnership where, you know, like a lot of people say, uh, a married couple cannot work together, meaning in like a bit work-wise. That, it, it, you know, having yeah. their own business and stuff, it just becomes, it leads to more problems, leads to certain things. This is an amazing story you're talking about that you spent all that time together. So how, tell us how you met. That would be an interesting story because then there's there goes the process of never never not seeing each other, which is fantastic, I think. Right. Well, my husband, when I met him, I was 20 years old, and he was a huge star in Canada. He was like the Johnny Carson of Canada. He had the late-night talk show and the afternoon talk show and a kid's show and and a forerunner to Saturday Night Live. I mean, he was Mr. Television up there. In fact, he's in the Hall of Fame up there. And um, he came to the States because he felt he had gone as far as he could in Canada, and he made a partnership with Dick Clark. And the first show that they sold together, they didn't have any studio space in L.A., so they took a studio in San Francisco, KGO-TV, an ABC affiliate, and that was my good fortune. So I am a struggling single teenage mother and divorcee and uh, come from alcoholism, and, and I've written several books about what it was like growing up with that kind of violence. And... I'm hired, all I was thinking about was I just need money for food, shelter, clothing, feed us. And I get a gig at ABC for one day, just to be a prize model on this game show for one day. But if you do well, maybe it'll work into something full-time. So I walk into the studio, and there he is. And I'd never seen anybody like that. I didn't know who he was. I'd never felt that kind of aura. People were standing all around him. And I stood in the corner just watching him. And then all of a sudden, he looked at me. And all of a sudden, it was like in the movies. You know, it's all the other voices became filtered and sounded like blah, blah, blah. And we walked towards one another. And um, I lost the job that day because I was a really terrible prize model. I kept look, looking at the wrong <laughs> camera. <laughs> but... He found my number and called me, and uh, we began a love affair that just never stopped. And um, the reason I called it Two's Company is because um, there are pivotal things that happen in everybody's life. Like for me, 1973, I published my first book of poetry. I got that one-line part in American Graffiti as the mysterious blonde of the Thunderbird, and I was discovered by Johnny Carson in the commissary at NBC. Those are pretty major things right, exactly, that happened yeah. in, mm-hmm. all in one year. 
and um, and and all those Johnny Carson liked me and started having me on every month, and my little dumb book of poetry became the number one best-selling book of poetry in America. And on one of those many many times, the president of ABC said, "I got the girl for Three's Company. I see her on the Tonight Show all the time." So here's another like right place, right time. And I I sign on for anything with with um, Three's Company. I'm so grateful to have this incredible job. But by year six, my contract was up, and the game had changed a bit. I'd been featured on 60 Minutes and on the cover of Newsweek, and you know, 50 magazine covers uh, throughout the years, and and um, I, I was like everything changed, and so it was clear that the men were being paid 10 to 15 times more than the women on television, and wow. I'm on the number one show, and I'm the number one female. And so I go in, or my husband went in on my behalf, and um, to start the negotiation that I would like to be paid commensurate with the men. And unbeknownst to us, they had decided to fire me before he even got there because they wanted to make an example. If they could fire the 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 biggest woman on television at that time, then all the other women would be afraid to ask for parity with men. And so I, he came home from that meeting, and I was just stunned because I just thought it was a negotiation. I never meant to leave the show. I didn't want to leave the show. And they started a smear campaign against me and that I was greedy and who did I think I was and turned the cast against me. And, and oh, um, I couldn't get a meeting. I couldn't get a job in television. And so... We looked at each other, and my husband said, we're going to make this work for us. And whereas we couldn't brand Chrissy Snow because they didn't understand business, that Chrissy Snow should have had a clothing line and a Saturday morning animated cartoon show, and a, she should have been a movie star, The Adventures of Chrissy Snow. We didn't own her, so we had to move on. And he said, we're going to brand Suzanne Summers, something that nobody had ever done before. And our first foray was The Thigh Master, which was yes. just a... And to this day, a phenomenal success. And then he, because he, he said to me, you can't focus on what you don't have. You don't have the show anymore. But what you have is everybody knows your name. And I think that's a lesson for everybody out there. Rather, we all focus on what we don't have. Focus on what you do have. Yes. What, how can you make this work for you? So he took my fame and went to Las Vegas, made a two-year deal for me at the MGM Grand Hotel. We opened to great raves, sellouts, and in 1987, I was voted Las Vegas Female Entertainer of the Year, along with Frank Sinatra, who was Male Entertainer of the Year. So we won. And eventually, television started calling me back, but it took 10 years before that happened. But in the meantime, we had established our own business. We yes. became entrepreneurs, you know, and um, and and... And what, what I realized in writing this book was it's not the problems in your life that define you. It's how you respond to the problems in your life that define you as a person. So your house burns down. What, what good can come from that? You've got to learn something from that. You exactly, get cancer. Yeah. What good mm -hmm. can come from that? You've got to learn something from that. What good can come from getting fired? You've got to learn something from it. And so I describe myself and us as a schmoo throughout this book. A schmoo is one of those life-size punching bags, you know, with a clown yes, on the yes. face and sand on the bottom. You, you punch it, it bounces back. You punch it again, it bounces back again. And that's what we've done, knowing that there's no perfect life, there's no linear life, nobody's got a problem-free life, everybody's got problems. It's what you do with your problems. Turn them into opportunities, and that's essentially the essence of this book, and it's a great love story. We're so in love, here, 50 years together, and wow. he still turns me on. We date two and three times a week. We dance. We just have this incredible time together, and I wanted people to know what it's like when it really works, mutual respect. He loves my brain. I love his brain, and um, we listen to one another, and um, we don't argue. We did in the first 10 years because we were blending families, but... We just don't even argue anymore. I, I, I know. I don't know what's down the road. I don't know what awaits us. Nobody does. But I've learned to live in the present right now. Right yes. now, I'm just would describe myself as a happy person. I'm content. I love my life. I, I love my work. I love my husband, my family. I love the food I get to eat. I'm just in a place of gratitude. 
Suzanne, it's a tremendous story. For the short time I have you on the program, everyone needs to pick up Two's Company, a 50-year romance with lessons learned in life, a love, life, and business. You can pick it up in all finer bookstores. Is there a place we can connect with you? I know you're connected on social media and you're all over the place, Suzanne. You're, you, you have Suzanne Bill Summers. DeBrenner. Yeah, Suzanne, yeah, SuzanneSummers.com. And that's where I have my organic skincare line. And, we're, you know, that's all part of what it is Alan and I are doing together. I, we have a, um, a slogan in our company. It says, doing well while doing good. I think there's nothing wrong with um, doing well. But if you can turn doing well into something good for humanity, that's what we're trying to do. Thanks, Suzanne. It was a great story. It gives everyone in, all, in our audience an inspiration. And thanks for taking the time to come on the show. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Neil. Thank you very much. Thanks, Suzanne. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. Neil Haley's show on the Total Celebrity segment. And I have had on so many Shark Tank contestants since the beginning of Shark Tank. A huge fan, but I never thought I'd get the opportunity to interview one of the Sharks. And I am getting that opportunity. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Robert Hershevek of Shark Tank, ABC Shark Tank. Robert, thanks for calling. And you've got to be amazed at how the growth of this show and the popularity of this show since when you first started with it, how it's just become such a huge show. Did you expect that? Well, no, nobody saw that coming because I think we thought it would be this business show. I mean, when you think about it, five people talking about business doesn't really sound like a major uh, hit, but what we didn't realize is how much families would love the show, and we're one of the top shows on television for families, and and none of us saw that happening, and, and it gives people so much hope and so much inspiration. Yeah. It's an incredible platform to be involved with. It's all about the story, isn't it? The, 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 shark, the people who come in and say they want, they have this great business idea, it's all about the story. And the, and the passion, and that's what families love watching, to see are the sharks going to invest in this special uh, product or service or idea, right? That's the big thing that makes it so successful, I think. It's, it, everybody's got a great story, and, you know, we're, we're really proud to be part of the show, but it's, it's about the people coming out and their dreams and some of their stories. I mean, after nine seasons, it never ceases to amaze us at the creativity of people and the incredible products and businesses that people build and their dreams and their aspirations. It's amazing. One thing I learned from a lot of Shark Tank contestants and for our listeners out there to understand is it is a pressure cooker, isn't it? Even for you guys because it, they cut out a lot of what goes on in the presentation and what happens behind the scenes before they present. And it's a, it's a very challenging thing even for the Sharks when you guys are presented all these ideas, right? Yeah, it's, it's, we, we love the idea that they come out with and some of the things that we see. And, and, you know, we're just normal five people. Some of us are really good at math. Some of us are not so good at math. And it's, sometimes it's about the people pitching, and sometimes it's about the argument with the sharks and the shark fights. And when you first were on the set with the original sharks, what did you think so far? Like, did you th- could you, did you originally just get along with them, or you saw that you guys are so different in so many ways? Like when you first met them and said, okay, we're going to do this TV show, and here are the Sharks, and here are their backgrounds, and here's Robert. And Did you think, okay, I'm going to well, get along with these guys? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah I've, I've known Kevin for a number of years. Him and I used to do the show in Canada, believe it or not. Really? And oh, wow. the original Sharks were Kevin and I, Barbara, Damon, and Kevin Harrington, who was a shark in the first season. And, you know, we all got along. We didn't know each other, but we respected each other. That's the great thing is everybody has this incredible background and this motivating story. Barbara does, Damon does, Kevin does. And so, but when you film the show, it's very real. People don't realize that the average pitch is over an hour. And in that hour... You want to say something, you got to say something. You know, this isn't uh, 
put up your hand, it's your turn to speak. When we like something and we think we can make money on it, we're all over it. We're not waiting for a polite opportunity to uh, speak. And sometimes when you see the guest sharks come in, they have a hard time with that. They think that, you know, it's feely and fluffy, but it's not. It's, it, Shark Tank moves at the speed of business for sure. And it teaches people a lot how to present to somebody. I think this is a great teachable moment for people to have an idea, and they're going to present in front of someone else, not the sharks always. And to understand you better have a business idea, and it can make money. And if people watch the show, they learn a lot about what it takes to make money in business. And I think that's what you guys do a tremendous job is educating the public about how tough it is to be an entrepreneur. Well, you make a great point. We always say to people, it's not my responsibility to listen. It's your responsibility to make me hear. And it's not just on Shark Tank. It's in general in life. You know, and yeah. life is, is crowded and life is noisy. And if you want to get a raise or you want to start a business or you're going to ask for money, it's your responsibility to make that pitch be relevant to that person. And I think that applies to, to everything. And I think we do a good job of teaching people what works and what doesn't and how to do it well. And I, I love the show. Um, my family's grown up since then. I have five kids of my own, Robert, and I don't get to watch it as much as I was before. Life gets busier the older they get. And I think you understand that as well in life, that the more you are able to sit down and watch different things, now I'm like, holy cow, I interview all these different people. I wish I could watch the shows. But this season, the guest shark is interesting. Is this the first season, Robert, where you brought in different guest sharks for each uh, episode? where someone else comes in that no, we haven't had, really been on Shark Tank? Yeah. No, we've had guest sharks since uh, season two. We Believe it or not, people don't remember now, but we had Jeff Foxworthy as a guest shark way back when, seven years ago. And so we've often had guest sharks. This season, we've really tried to mix it up by having lots of guest sharks. And I think it brings a great energy to the show and a real dynamicism because not only do you get to see a new shark and how they think, but I think it changes the chemistry between all of us because we don't know what they're going to do. You know, we, we don't sit around and plan things. They just show up, and they're all in. I mean, we had Richard Branson on this year, Alex Rodriguez, Rohan Alza, yeah. Bethany Frankel. It's, it's really interesting. It is, and it's interesting how they see things that I didn't know. I, I kind of remember, but I think that the more of the guest sharks, it really makes it interesting. It gives you guys a week off or something of an episode, and you can see, uh, and then seeing yourself in your seat, right, Robert, when you are off one week and someone else is on, you'll say, okay, I didn't think about that perspective. I'm maybe going to think about that the next time I sit next to Kevin or somebody else and say, oh, maybe I should handle it differently. That's the other part of entrepreneurship is always studying, always learning, and always trying new things. Well, that's such a great point. Not only does America learn from the pitchers and from us, but the sharks also learn from each other. We learn what works. We learn what doesn't. And when we see the guest sharks, they always bring something new to it. And, you know, after nine seasons, I'm still amazed about some of the deals that we put together, and I'm still amazed about the pitches that people uh, give us. All right. Well, everyone needs to tune in Sundays, 9 p.m. Eastern to Shark Tank. And, Robert, I know you have books out and different things entrepreneur-wise that you'd like to promote. So where's the best place we can go for you, Robert, to learn about your books, other types of products and services that you have? Where can we go? Yeah, just online. We have a website, robertherjavac.com, and on social media, and, uh, of course, on ABC Shark Tank. Well, Robert, it was an absolute honor to get to chat with you. Uh, I love entrepreneurship. I'm trying to build a bunch of different businesses myself, and to get the chance to sit down and chat with you is great. And if you're in Pittsburgh, we've got to have coffee sometime if you ever come out to Pittsburgh, okay? I'd love to. Thank you very much. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm excited to welcome the program Atticus Schaefer from the middle. Atticus, thanks for calling. 
And I think this this season is bittersweet for you, isn't it, Atticus? Especially uh, being the, uh, the the last season of the middle, going into now the 200th episode. What reminiscing your whole childhood you spent on the show, almost? It's it's got to be it's bittersweet, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, um, the show has been where I've grown up. I've spent more than half my life here on the lot, and so to be able to or I shouldn't say to be able, but to come to the point of where I have to say goodbye, uh, it's definitely bittersweet. Um, the good part about knowing it's the end is obviously the writers can arc it accordingly so the show has the proper ending. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, every week we do a table read and we go, it's the last 13th episode table read, it's the last... 14th episode table race, you know oh, what I'm saying? My. And so, yeah. you know, there's all these lasts going on, and so we're just, we're, we're cherishing it, we're uh, milking it for all it's worth, we love what we do, and, um, you know, I'm, I am going to be sad to see it go, but I'm already thinking of ways to try to keep the old crew family together, and maybe I can get back onto the Warner, Warner Ranch lot somehow in the future with another project. All right. Well, and for sure. And thinking about it, you'll never die as Brick. Here's the reason why. Because you guys are on syndication already. Your show is played every day somewhere across the country and maybe all over the world that even when the show finally ends, people will be watching your episodes forever. So you got to be happy that you had Absolutely. such a successful show you were on. Because that's the thing. I don't know if any of other actors tell you that. It's nice that... Shows have been off the air for three or four years, but people still recognize you, still understand what's going on, and you still have that street cred because guess what? You're still on five days a week. Not just one day a week, but five. And the, and, or maybe even ten Absolutely. times. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you know, and that's and that's the blessing too. Is is the show has really been a time capsule of my childhood and of my teenage years, and so to have it not only be that time capsule, but like you said, it's something that is is continuously playing and people are able to continue to enjoy. Um, I love that. I love being able to do, ha- having done all this work for so long. I love that it's still going to be paying off and still going to be enjoyed um, by the fans for a, a long time to come. And because of social media, Atticus. This is the greatest part is there'll be Facebook groups for the middle forever so that you can go to them. It's a different story when a show ends because of social media, they still talk up shows that have not been on the air for 30 years. So that, that's the nice right. thing about it is there's always going to be a platform to reminisce about this net, about the show. And you never know. There could be, we see Netflix. We see all these other places. They bring shows back. They bring reunions back. You never know what could happen in the next in your career, where you constantly will be remembering the middle. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's jump really quickly before we talk about the 200th episode on December 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Let's jump really quickly into your fondest memory on the middle show, your favorite show of all those episodes, and then your fondest memory on the set. Let's go first with fondest memory of one of your favorite shows that you shot. Oh, okay. Well, let's uh, for for a favorite show, a favorite episode. Um, I'm going to reach way back. One of my favorite episodes of all time has got to be. It's called the Block Party. And excuse me, I think it was the third episode of the season of season one. And it was an episode that really let the audience see who Brick really is, his intellect, um, his quirks, who he is, what he loves. And it's it's witnessed through the eyes of Mike, his dad. And uh, Brick helps Mike build this lawnmower, a racing lawnmower for the block party's lawnmower race. And when he does... And when he does that, you know, Brick, I'm sorry, Mike kind of gets an understanding of his son and, and appreciates that. But then at the end of the episode, uh, Mike sacrifices the win um, in the lawnmower race so he can get Brick to the library on time because that's important to Brick. And so it's, it really initiated the do-for-family uh, mindset of the show, but also the the love and the understanding that the hex have for one another, even with all their quirks, and also it showed Brick showing it's okay to march to the beat to your own drummer, to be smart, to be who you are. Absolutely, you, you got it, and that's that's a really good show, and it had a really good moral 
and it was a for sure. Now, favorite fondest memory on the set. Now that's got to be crazy with the, the, the all-star cast that you worked with for so many years. What would you say it would be? Oh, yes. No, it, I, and I'm actually going to cheat a little bit. It's it's uh it's somewhat of a memory, but it's also not. But the the cool part about growing up on this on this set is again we have become like a family. Um, the cast and the crew, we are all one big family. And uh, one of my fondest memories. Um, Every year we get this, is every year during the holidays, um, there will always be a very special lunch and kind of celebration day, um, the, last, the last day of filming before we go on our Christmas hiatus. And it's kind of like an early Christmas. So we'll all, you know, there'll be gift-giving, there's little, like, cookie parties in the wardrobe trailer, um, the, the caterers, they make up a big Christmas feast with, like, turkey and ham and all the fixings, and it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful day kind of where everyone's just coming together and having fun and being able to be jovial. Yes, we do the work and we get the work done, but then, you know, we get to have, have a little bit of fun and be able to just celebrate with each other before we go on hiatus. So every year that has been such a, such a special memory to me in my heart, and so to be able to share that every year. Um, with my cast and my crew family is such a blessing. Fabulous. That's, that's, that's a really good story. I, I love it, and it's something about it. Now, the kids, you guys were all pretty much unknown actors when you started, but the parents, your parents, they were well-known. They both were on hit shows. So they, they've been there, done that, and, and have a T-shirt for a show that had a great run, and then it was over. Have you gotten advice from those two, especially, especially when you talk about uh, mom and dad, your your TV mom and dad, and about the transitioning to a new new a uh, new opportunities? Uh, you know, quite frankly, it's something that I've kind of observed on my own. Um, it, it, not to say that I haven't gotten advice from them, but it's one of those things where I am I am the person that knows what's best in terms of knowing me at the very least. And so, you know, I do, I do talk with people. I do talk with my team. I even, you know, talk with my mom because a mom's opinion is always something to, to take to heart. And um, I, I do have a plan in terms of transitioning. Um, my, ob- my observing, my hands-on education that I've been able to get being on this show for so long um, has, been, has been such a, uh, an advantage for me. Um, because what my goal is, is I want to continue my acting, whether it be voiceover or theatrical. I want to continue the acting. I'm very passionate about acting. I'm excited to see what roles I can get into going into the future. But what, I, what I'm very excited about as well is I want to get into directing, writing, and producing. And uh, Warner Brothers has supported that um, a bit with allowing me to be a part of the Warner Brothers Directors Workshop, which that oh, happened wow. last summer, and that was a great hands-on experience. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience, um, really putting myself in the director's seat and being able to understand what it entails. And then, of course, you know, I, I have stories that I want to write and I want to see be made into either movies or TV. And, um, and so I, I, I'm definitely taking the initiative. I'm not, I'm not just going to be sitting around twiddling my thumbs. I'm taking the initiative to, to move on and to, to take those next steps to transition me from kid on the middle to, um, you know, Atticus Schaefer, adult actor, director, writer, producer. Oh, I love it, and that's great. Again, you have the voiceover, you have all those things. You got you got your head on your head on your shoulders. Great, I'm excited. And again, everyone needs to tune in to the 200th episode. I don't want to spoil anything. Everyone just needs to tune in and celebrate 200 episodes of the middle, December 5th, 8 p.m. Eastern on ABC. Best place we can follow you on all social media probably is Atticus Schaefer. Everything, right? Instagram, Twitter, all that, right? Uh, well- yeah. Uh, for Twitter, it's at Atticus Schaefer 2, the number 2. And then um, for Facebook, it's the official Atticus Schaefer fan page. I was late to social right. media, so I had to come up with some weird names. <laughs> hey, 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 I love talking to you. Thank you for reminiscing about The Middle. I'm going to make sure that every group on Facebook that loves The Middle gets this opportunity to hear this interview. And best of luck. And I hope to chat with you with a new project sometime in your career. So thanks for calling. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate it, man. God bless you. Uh, God bless you, too. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.
You're listening to the Haley Show. We'll be back in the Haley Show on the Total Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program. Legendary seven-time Grammy Award-winning founder of the Commodores, Thomas McClary. Thomas, thanks for calling. How are you? Neil, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is definitely all mine to have you on the show. And I'll tell you, I'm, I was born in 1973, but when I bounced at a disco club and listening to your music, I heard it so many times. And if I would go back and listen to all the songs when I was bouncing uh, disco when I was in college, oh, my gosh, your music is so awesome. And just to well, remember you, all Neil. the great songs that you guys came up with, I mean, it was, it was, it was a sure a fun time in the 70s, wasn't it, with the music? Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I, it's amazing. Uh, I appreciate that. We've had uh, traveling around the world, people say to us, man, I got married to three times a lady, or I couldn't stop dancing to Brick House, or Slippery When Wet, or Lady Bring Me Up, or uh, my nephew was dying of cancer, and Zoom just helped him ease the pain. So <laughs> we've been fortunate to touch emotions and uh, penetrates through the hearts of people around the world, and uh, thanks to the fans and to you as well for playing our music. Absolutely. So let's kind of jump into how it all started. Again, writing a book, that's, mm-hmm. that, that's the challenge. We'll go to that. But I wanted to go really into the story of how, first of all, you, uh, how you guys came together and that story, for sure. Oh, oh yeah. Well, we talk about that in the book, uh, Rock and Soul, as well. Uh, I was a freshman at Tuskegee University, and, of course, a freshman not knowing anyone. I'm standing in the registration line, and I hear this guy whistling, and he was whistling a song by Eddie Harris, a jazz artist. And I turned to him and I said, hey, man, are you a musician? This guy was really shy, and he says, not really. I said, well, I'm looking to find some musicians to put a band together for a freshman talent show. This guy was Lionel Richie. So he says, uh, <laughs> um, he says, well, I, I'm from Tuskegee, and my grandmother lives across the streets from the campus. If you want to meet some musicians, I'll round up some guys, and you can audition them at my grandmother's. So... Uh, that was the beginning of um, putting what at that time we call ourselves the Mystics, and uh, we went on to uh, to win the, the freshman talent show. And I decided that uh, hey, we should keep this rolling, you know. And uh, so wow. we just yeah. uh, we merged with another band that was another campus band called the Jays, and the two bands just kind of merged together and. Uh, no one could would vote on the other guy's recommendation for a new name. So I, I asked Michael Gilbert if he would just mind uh, blindfolding him and uh, open up a dictionary and whatever name that he pointed his finger to, that was going to be the name of the band. And uh, well, the initial point was commodes. <laughs> so, but we <laughs> he said, no, we got to we got to let him do a do over here. <laughs> So the second time, oh, wow. the Commodores, and that's how we got our name. And so just to tell you my age and not knowing this, I never knew until I started researching you today in music, meaning like I knew your music. I know oh, when I saw the songs, I never knew that Lionel Richie was part of, of the group. Isn't that funny? That goes back to, I guess, my age and stuff like that. So, <laughs> Lion, so you're the one that discovered Lionel then in so many ways. You, Commodores that's right. are so successful, but Lionel as well, but you were one. Wow! So that's an it's really yes. interesting story that's in the book. Oh, thank you. Yes, it is. It's in Rock and Soul. In fact, uh, it was a lot of struggles, obviously, in the beginning uh, to start them, and we talk about a little of that in the book, and we talk about uh, all of the uh, even the struggles that I'm having right now. As a matter of fact, in terms of uh, uh, reuniting the original guys back together. So oh, it's wow. uh, it's a great read. It's a great read. Now, if you do go ahead and come to Pittsburgh, all the guys, I have to meet you, Thomas. Or if you do, if you are in Pittsburgh at one point in time, 
I need to get another one-on-one interview in person. I had a couple members of the the Platters and the Supremes. Got to have someone like you in a one-on-one television interview as well, Thomas. Especially if you get the whole group back together and, and come to Pittsburgh. That got it. That got oh, more Neil. stops if you do. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can bet your life. Uh, I will definitely do that. In fact, um, I'm going to be doing a book tour as well. And uh, Pittsburgh could very well be one of the cities I have to look on the itinerary. But I would certainly be uh, delighted to. Um, I'm going to hook back up with you, Neil. In fact, um, you know, before we leave, I'm going to make sure you get my my personal information as well. Awesome. Thank you, Thomas. I really appreciate that. Because I'm a historian. Uh, I remember growing up, and we'll go to Motown. This is a great point. You know, you, you think the backdrop of Motown, a lot of people think, they think disco 70s. And they think, but when I learned a lot of the history, I remember writing some papers on Motown. So I'm a historian when I have an undergrad in history. So kind of talk about mm. Motown's transition in the 70s. You guys got discovered. Uh, and then we'll go to the Barry Gordy. But I like that backdrop of going to Motown 60s and how that development came to the 70s where the music was a little bit more different than the 60s and, I guess, uh, a new transition. Explain that kind of for our listeners. Oh, sure. Um, Barry Gordy, uh, in all due respect, he had put together a machine, actually, in a similar line where he had all of these great songwriters and um, musicians and they would go in and you know he had a couple of producers that would go in and they would lay these tracks and then they would have um, you know the singers um, um, Diana Ross and Supremes The Temptations, The Miracles Gladys Knight and the Pips and they would just go in and sing on, on these songs and uh, you know it was just um, uh, man magic they would all come out and be hits or whatever and of course when the Commodores uh, came along. We were um, a little different. We 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 had signed a contract with Motown, and for two years we sat there, not activating the contract because we didn't want to, out of all due respect, do that same assembly line approach. So finally, Mr. Gordon says, "You know what? Okay, what the heck? These guys want to play their own music and write their own music. If it's just a." Uh, a loss, it'll be a tax write-off. Let him in the studio, leave him alone. And of course, we went in and uh, we uh, came out with Machine Gun, and and it was the first gold album in the history of Motown. They had had gold singles wow. prior to that, but never a gold album. And of course, it was, um, uh, you know, we broke uh, the attendance record in the Philippines off of that same one album. We 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 broke all kinds of sales around the world in Nigeria and different parts of the world. And so uh, we had all talked about um, revolutionizing and being trailblazers and everything. So, and we you know initially dreamed of being the Black Beatles, if you will, and we literally okay. broke the Beatles' attendance record there in the Philippines on that one album. And of course, it set us up for great negotiations. Uh, so, and when we renegotiated our contract, we were the first act in the history of Motown to uh, acquire the publishing rights. So. It was a pretty um, a landmark situation there. Um, and in fact, yeah. uh, Stevie Wonder and, um, you know, Norman Whitfield, Marvin Gaye, and all those guys got their publishing as a result of the Commodores getting theirs. And so you think of that transition Motown, late 60s to the early 70s. Was that a concern for you that you're seeing the music completely changing in certain ways of the style, the expectation of the music from the 60s to the 70s? Was that a, were you nervous about that? Because you guys were all talented singers, and you're seeing it going well, to a more of a show, more of a performance than the talent music of Motown in the 60s. That's right. It was a pretty courageous thing uh, for us to do. Uh, because you just hit it right on the head. 
it, Motown had been very successful, you know, with uh, the sound and the direction that they were going. But our thing was we felt compelled to um, be different. And it was, um, we had worked on, I had worked on what I called the signature sound as we uh, toured with the Jackson 5. We didn't have any hits, obviously. So we were doing top 40 music, but I would take songs like from uh, Three Dog Night or, you know, Crosby, Steele, Nash and Young, James Taylor or uh, James Brown or the Sly Stones or whatever. And then we would put our own arrangement to it. And I called it Commodorizing the Song, you know? Okay. So, and, and that's how we developed what I call the signature sound. And it was, uh, we wanted to take that same approach to our original music. And uh, we couldn't do that with the uh, similar line uh, formula that Barry Gordy was using because those tracks were already recorded and all they right. did was allow people to go in and just sing on them, you know? So, um, it was out of uh, the, we were just uh, felt strong about it. And so finally, Barry says, you know what? Let him alone. Let him do it. <laughs> and so that process began. And then the funk, really, you brought the funk, right? And how the, there how you go. Kinda, That's right. Yeah, you, you brought it, you brought it all out. And, and, and it must <laughs> make you proud Neil. when people like, <laughs> Go ahead. What were you gonna say, Tommy? What were you gonna say? No, I was. Right. I was just. I was laughing at you. You know, you brought the punk. I was. Go ahead, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> you brought the punk. And you know where I got a lot of your sound from, Tommy? Is again, I was a huge fan of Snoop Dogg in high school, and so and different things, and how he really liked your music, and things like that, and how certain rap stars were influenced by your music. You got to be. You were proud of that as well, weren't you? I don't know if you put oh, that no in question the, about uh, it. Yeah. Oh yeah. In fact, uh, you know, we uh, we were we were very very fortunate. Um, you know, I just remember um, not only some of the rappers, but even Mick Jagger would come when we later on started. You know, in the seventies uh, with the Brick House and all of the hits and stuff. Uh, we were headlining at uh, Madison Square Garden. Um, Mick Jagger would come to all of our shows and just hang out at sound checks. And, you know, he was like, you know, he said, man, uh, we, the Rolling Stones would play uh, Slipper When Wet, one of our songs, in, in their sound checks, you know, when they rehearse and stuff. So I'm like, um, and of course, Bob Molly was uh, his last concert. Uh, before he died, was with the Commodores in at Madison oh, Square, wow. and uh, yeah, and it's a photograph of the, of him, he and the group, and I, uh, um, in my book, uh, and it was um, man, just Carlos Santana, uh, Eric Clapton, uh, oh. Elton John, uh, oh my. Stevie Wonder, yeah. uh, Michael Jackson, Rita uh, Franklin, everybody was backstage at the show because, you know, they knew that obviously they had advertised that this was Bob Marley's last concert. And of course, and being with the Commodores for his last um, live performance, that was pretty historic. Wow. I'm just really enjoying my conversation with Thomas McCleary of the Commodores. And we're talking about his book and stories. And I just, I love, I love this convo. But kind of jumping really into this, Thomas, when you talk about specifically all these music influences and things like that, what is your favorite of the songs of your best hit? Do you have a favorite, Thomas, that you like to perform? Well, I love performing easy, obviously. You know, uh, we do an extended version of it live, and um, and it's fun. Um it's almost like saying, which one of your ch- children do you like the best? You know, I but, do. I didn't know. say that, but I was, I was going to see if you'd say something quickly and say, some guys will just say, my favorite song was this. But because you're the lead singer, you like them all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, Neil. I tell you, man, it's, 
it, you know, my kids and I have been performing um, all over the world as these songs as well, and uh, it's good to, to 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 vibe off of that energy and just uh, and taking the songs, you know, then that signature sound around the world. We were just in the UK, and uh, BBC uh, invited us. Um, to an interview there on uh, debuting the book and all, and uh, we, you know, the sold out shows, and it was just good to see that next generation, um, absolutely gravitating to the music as well, you know. And New York loves Motown also. That a lot of people, even though you don't all, some Motown people can't sell out in the U.S. They they go they go they go to Europe and. Their their fame's back again. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you guys are known everywhere still, but some of the other groups that have been forgotten, they can go travel to Europe. That's true. And, That's true. and it'll That's true, be Neil. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, but, it's true. It's. Uh, I can't wait, right, though, so, man. I can't wait to 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 get to Pittsburgh and uh, <laughs> you, uh, man. There are a lot of great memories there in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Oh, do you have any to share that you can't, or you can't share them on on air? Some of your great memories, Thomas of Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Pittsburgh, well, you Pittsburgh know, is a character we, town. Yeah, go, Thomas. Yeah, yeah. We used to, we used to, we used to have this thing about Pittsburgh, and uh, you know, because obviously the Steelers, um, yeah. we had um, some of the guys um, were in the sports as well, and so. Uh, the Steelers was one of our favorite, you know, teams, you know, and, uh, yeah. you know, Terry Bradshaw and, you know, doing oh, that yeah. time, you know, I, I, I was uh, a really a Terry Bradshaw fan. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. in your book, do you talk about how Lionel went single? I Because I have to ask that question. Kind of like the history of like the Jackson 5 and Michael went. What, oh, what yeah, was, yeah. did you write about about Lionel and the decision Lionel to go and become a singles artist? Well, did that hurt you, or was it a mutual decision? Or explain that because again, you t- I did not know. Like again, you met Lionel in college together, so to see his mm-hmm. stardom after that, yeah. So explain that, yeah. Well, Lionel and I wrote most of all the songs, and it was um, beginning to get like in. Any, uh, most all groups, you know, you have everybody, even though you may have a, a democratic society where you vote on everything, uh, the talents are not just going to be the same, you know, uh, even though uh, the chemistry of everybody and that's what makes, you know, everything great. Uh, as we began to um, have more and more, uh, my whole thing was to, model the group after the Rolling Stones and you know as Mick Jagger would you know was the lead guy and you need a Mick Jagger if you're going to be a super super actor is what I felt you know so we constantly I would constantly encourage and push Lionel out and of course as he began to get more and more rank name recognition you know and interviews um uh, you know, right. uh, some of the guys were feeling like um, Motown was behind all of this or whatever, but that really, right, right. you know, that really wasn't the case, you know. And of course, um, when uh, Kenny Rogers asked uh, to do a song with the Commodores, um, Lionel had a song that um, called "Lady," which. Uh, right. You know, it was it was a huge hit for Kenny, but because the guys were still, you know, trying to be more up-tempoed and all, um, they didn't want necessarily the song on our album. And I was like, well, so Lana called me. He says, look, T-Mac, uh, uh, why don't you and I go and do this Kenny Rogers project? And uh, so I co-wrote another song called Without You in My Life with him on that album and we went and recorded, you know, that project and then uh, the Endless Love project came up uh, and same thing, you know, see, since he and I had been writing most of the songs anyway, he needed to finish the soundtrack up so uh, 
you know, we co-wrote a song on that soundtrack, The Dreaming of You. And, of course, um, it began the whole thing of Motown wanting to explore him as a solo artist, you know. And as I explained to the guys, this is um, a natural progression. And we, you know, look at it as the Rolling Stones. I was trying to still use that model. And um, so... You know, <clears throat> Mick Jagger goes and do his thing, and then he comes back with to the Stones, and they do their thing. Right. And, uh, so, um, but the sabbatical is probably is overdue. So, we're um, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're we're putting the the little heat on Lionel now. To uh, hey, all right, come on, hook this thing back up. There you go. See. So you can do this for another twenty years, like the Stones, the Stones did, right? Once Lionel comes back, he's back, back rolling again. Gotcha, for sure. Now, Thomas, because this is again your memoir. Uh, what surprises should we expect? I mean, we talk a lot. We talked a lot about the history of the group, but not you in general. Being that lead singer, being the leader in a lot of ways of that group to keep them together and keep the success for so many years. What? Can you share with our audience how you're able to do that? Because that's that's a challenge. Because lots of groups break up. It lots is. Of groups, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Neil. I think the watershed moment for me, and I talk about this in the book, um, love, you know, and passion for uh, mankind and for people. And I was the first African American, for instance, to integrate the public school in Lake County during the midst of a civil rights movement. And I think that, yeah. And um, it was amazing what I persevered to. And it was, I I admired Dr. King and Jack Robinson. And so I was uh, using that model, you know, to uh, nonviolence and of course to have bricks and rocks and, uh, oranges thrown at you and, you know, hit you literally yeah. in your back or, and oh, to have yeah. your sweater burnt, to have your sweater burnt on you literally while you have it on, you know, <laughs> uh, but still love, you know, that's the whole key. So um, I think that was a, played a very important part uh, in me dealing with the music industry and, and, and the group, you know, because um, you have, um, when you look at our industry, there are a lot of um, obstacles, and it's a tough yeah. business, you know. And uh, of course, um, <clears throat> having the fortitude to stick to it and uh, that dream in front of you, and um, weathering the the storms. So, I. Um, it was amazing. I went back to my 25th uh, anniversary of, the, of my class reunion, and it was um, <clears throat> some of the students, they were amazed. They, they brought their kids, and some of them brought their parents, you know, because <laughs> they, wow. they had told their kids that they had gone to school with me, and, and they wanted me to tell um, just a 10-minute talk on what it was really like for me. And I thanked some of them because it was – tough and you know for a few of them too to befriend me because they that was pressure on them as well you know exactly but as i told them love was the the thing and to see um us just hug and just uh just have a great time and look at that whole i mean because I, when i think about it <clears throat> And some of them literally told me this, that they had no idea, you know, um, sometimes uh, when there's a generational thing that happens and, you know, kids, if you don't hear it from that next generation, you know, you you just look at the human race as the human race, you know, <laughs> but uh, they were amazed that exactly. Um, some of the things that um, I endured because I didn't really, you know, uh, talk about it, you know, we just, um, but um, I think those, uh, that's going to be a great part of the book that I think that will be interesting for the readers and 
Um, it will, you know, we talk about the humanitarian side of me as well and how we yeah. have raised money for a lot of different causes of senior citizens who don't have health insurance, uh, kids mm-hmm. who um, are suffering from lupus and um Arthritis. I didn't realize that that was a children's disease. You know that would target yeah. kids. I thought it, I thought it was an older people <laughs> before I started raising money <laughs> for it. You know, yeah. and uh, of course the troops. You know, we raise money for the for our troops, and so it's um um a variety of things that we donate our time and working with churches and their bands and their groups to try to keep the youth involved in in something positive. And when you look at the Little Richards, the James Browns, uh, the Commodores, um, you know, Aretha Franklin's of the world, they all got started in the church. And so trying to encourage the young um, youth to get tied into a venue that can help develop them musically as well. Exactly. And, and so it's 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 been a lot of fun just uh you know uh staying active and giving something back into the communities. All right, so Thomas, how difficult was it to write a book? As busy a guy as you are, to put this all down on paper. <laughs> that was that a challenge. Neil. Oh man, I tell you, yes, yes, yes. It I'm, I uh a lot of people have said to me you know, they, they, they've taken years to do what I did in maybe um, nine months, but it was not easy. It's just, uh, you know, because um, you don't, first of all, you don't think about things that, your life story, you know, that's not something you think about exactly. every day, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, I guess the thing that really kind of got it started was as as me and my kids would travel around the world playing all these uh, the great Commodore hits and stuff, uh, our fans would ask us, when are the original Commodores going to get back together? And um, as I started thinking about, you know, why haven't we gotten back together more, you know, uh, and when do I think we will? And, so I started writing down these little thoughts, and uh, that's kind of what started in the you know the whole process. And I'm like, well, since I'm doing this, I might as well. And you know, you know, you start to um, uh, chronologically putting things down, and then you go, well, you know what? Well, I might as well go back a little bit further. Oh, let me go back a little exactly. bit further. Exactly. Oh, let me go back. Yeah. <laughs> And there you go. Exactly. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and the book and the book happens. Well, Thomas, yeah. uh, definitely stay on stay on the line. Once I go and sign off, I'll get you off on the on the uh, off air, and I'll go ahead and make sure we can. Uh, um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and absolutely. But best place we can find information so people can pick up Rock and Soul. Uh, yeah. They, they can Amazon yeah. dot. Uh, Amazon.com. Uh, they can Barnes and Nobles. They can order it there, or they can pick it up there. They can uh, also on my website, ThomasMcClary.com, and it's www.ThomasMcClary.com, or as I say, Amazon or Barnes and Nobles. And the book is called Rock and Soul. And there's a new single that's out as well. That it's called Do It. It's uh, it's, it's it's a hot uh, single. If you could imagine uh, the original Commodores, what they would be doing 2017, 18. This is yes. the sound. And, um, it's featuring my twin daughter, Mariah, and it's a joint venture with my son as well. So it's a collaboration with the three of us. It is called Do It. Talk to you, Thomas. Stay on the line, and we'll talk. Yes, sir.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.